studying the doctrine of salvation. The technical term is soteriology, and it just means the doctrine of salvation, the study of salvation. I want you to know that in systematic theology, we've skipped a couple doctrines that you typically would study. So it's important for you to know that. If I were to do this systematically, I would have talked about the doctrine of God, which, by the way, we did a few weeks ago. And then I would have followed that up with what's called the doctrine of man. I would have talked to you about how man was created, was man eternal, immortal, all these kinds of things. It's very important as we follow it up, follow up God being the creator, God's cre God created us. And then we talk about man, what man is, what God intended, and so on. I would have done that. And if we had time, I would have talked about the doctrine of sin. And then we obviously, from there, we've established the need for salvation. And we would now, tonight, come to the doctrine of salvation. So we skipped the doctrine of man. We skipped the doctrine of sin. And what I'm going to attempt to do is put it together in this in bite-sized form, okay? So you're only going to get so much. But it's important to know that we, in a systematic theology sense, we skipped over a few things. I will include them as much as I can, so you will hear me touch on them. But in our study, as we go over what it means to be saved or what salvation is, you need to know that sa the word salvation in the New American Standard Bible is used 161 times, and that would be in the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you were just to simply look up the word salvation, you'd find it that many times, at least in the New American Standard. And then the word salvation generally means a basic description, deliverance from danger or suffering, and it carries the idea of victory, health, or preservation. Sometimes the Bible uh, uses the word uh, saved or salvation to refer to temporary physical deliverance. Now, why would I say this? You, you need to know this. You'll see this on your notes. You need to know that every time you read the word salvation in the Bible, it doesn't always mean the same thing. So as we talk about salvation tonight, we're going to be talking about the salvation of our soul. We're going to talk about the regeneration of our spirit. You're going you're gonna to see how, how we're going to land on that. But when you read the word salvation, especially in the Old Testament, a lot of times what they would be referring to is God delivering them from a situation and a circumstance. It's not the same as the doctrine of salvation. It's important to know that. For example, in Exodus 14, 13, uh, Moses and Israel are delivered from the Egyptians. You remember when the Red Sea or Reed Sea was parted and God speaks to Moses. It says in verse 13, but Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord because God had already spoken to him. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. It wasn't talking about eternal salvation. It was just talking about I'm going to deliver you in this circumstance. And, and so that's what that word had come to mean to the Jewish people all throughout the Old Testament. David actually prays in Psalm 18, many, many prayers. You'll see it all over the Psalms. And uh, he sings to God of delivering him from the hand of Saul, who was chasing him, who was seeking to take his life. And in Psalm 18:35, he says, You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. And what he was simply saying was, God, you delivered me you watched over me, you protected me. It was a way in which he communicated that. Another popular one would be when Jonah prays to God because he's in the belly of the whale. I know you guys have all memorized that story or you've had people make fun of you for believing it. Either way, you've heard of the story of Jonah and the whale. And so uh, good uh, atheists make fun of me for that story. 
I have great coffee conversations with folks from all over the spectrum. But Jonah prays when he's in the fish. Uh, he prays that God would uh, save him and deliver him from his situation. It says in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, But I will sacrifice, Jonah speaking, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. In the very next verse, he gets spit out of the fish. And you wonder what a guy like that would smell like, most likely. Anyhow, it's something that goes on in my head. But it's clear from these passages that when you read over the 161 times where it talks about salvation, obviously a lot of it's temporary physical deliverance. What happens, though, when you go to the New Testament is it shifts and change, it changes to the deliverance of our soul and the regeneration of our spirit. It's talking about our spiritual life and not our physical life. And you see that kind of happen. But if you read along the Old Testament, you kind of see how Israel had a mindset about the, the Messiah coming, the Savior of the world coming, and delivering them from the oppression that they were experienced. You'll remember that when the disciples were walking with Jesus and they would say to him, when are you going to come into your kingdom? When are you going to overthrow the Roman oppression is really what they meant. They were an oppressed people. They were pressed down by the Romans, and they were waiting. They were awaiting their deliverer, their savior, their Messiah, and they were wondering if Jesus was the one. And in Mark chapter 8, I think it's um, verse 26 to 38, you, I talked about it this last weekend at our church. You'll see where Jesus begins to talk to them about how he needs to go the way of the cross. And Peter actually rebukes Jesus for bringing up such a thing because he just revealed to him that he was the Messiah. And in his messianic theology, there's no way in the world that Jesus is going to die and suffer and all that he says he's going to do because in his theology, in his theology as a Jewish person, he's been born and raised to believe that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come with military and political power and he's going to overthrow the oppression and the oppressors and draw Israel to rule and reign along his side. And so they couldn't understand why Jesus would talk about suffering and why he would talk about being killed and rising from the dead. I don't even think it registered that he said rise from the dead because they, again, they had such a highly developed messianic theology. They didn't understand any of those kinds of things. So you can appreciate why this was such an important thing because all throughout their history, salvation meant temporary physical deliverance. And even their eternal perspective was that everything would really be start when their Messiah, when the Savior would come and deliver them in their situation. So in every generation, that's really how they saw this. But Jesus starts to talk about life eternal, and he starts to kind of change the game, and the people are wondering, what's he talking about? You see in like John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He begins to talk about this everlasting life, life eternal. Things are going to go on and on. I've come for a greater purpose than just to bring you out of your temporary bondage and oppression. And this was a concept that they didn't fully get when Jesus was even telling them. And, and to understand their confusion, it wasn't because they were dumb. It wasn't because they didn't get it. It was because they had been taught and told for years and years that this was the way things were going to happen. So when we look into the New Testament, we see Paul, based on the teachings of Jesus and understanding uh, the teachings of Jesus, he would speak of a salvation of the soul unto life. Like, uh, I, I'm just pulling up some verses, like Romans 1.16, 1 
He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation. In other words, the good news of Jesus Christ dying, being buried, and rising again, that good news of what Jesus did on our behalf for us, as we'll talk a lot about tonight, it's the power of God for salvation. And it wasn't about temporary physical deliverance. It was about eternal deliverance, deliverance from sin and the stuff we'll talk about in a moment. And then Paul goes on to the Ephesians, and he shares this in Ephesians chapter 1. He talks about a good news of salvation that saves our soul regenerates our spirit. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed it, you were sealed in him by the Holy Spirit of promise. Then he goes on to talk about some really important truths. But we just have to kind of get, there's this shift from Old Testament to New Testament because there was a lack of understanding on how this all was going to happen. Another thing you can see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul speaks of an eternal salvation And we hear this in Jesus as well, as I've said. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ, and with it eternal glory. This is about eternity. This isn't about, again, temporary uh, deliverance. And so when we talk about salvation, we're talking about an eternal thing. We're talking about God delivering us from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the consequences of sin, as you'll see. And so the, fir- <clears throat> the first thing that we have to do in this conversation is we have to establish the need for salvation. Why do we need to be saved? Why do we need salvation? Why does every human being need this? This is why we, we do. The first is, in Genesis chapter 1, we, we read, this is the story of creation. We were created in God's image for relationship, fellowship, and partnership in life. This is just maybe a snapshot of what we were created for. Certainly there was more in God's heart. There is more in God's heart. But we see this in Genesis 1. It says, let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. And then he says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. And he goes on to let them rule over all all these things. It's important that we get from the onset that we were created for fellowship and relationship with God. We weren't created just to be servants because we were created in his image according to his likeness. Now, you need to know the image and likeness, they're two different words. Every human being is created in the image of God. Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were in the image of God, and God was going to fashion them into his likeness. Likeness speaks of character. And this is what many call, like theologically, they call like the probationary period of God's creation. The question that you and I should have or would have at times would be like, why was Adam and Eve able to sin if they were created perfect? This would be a question that we should have. If Adam and Eve were created perfect, put into a perfect environment, how were they able to sin? And this is what, again, theologians would call the probation or the probationary period. They were created in God's image. God was walking with them, talking with them, in relationship with them. But they had the capacity, they had the ability to choose not to obey God, but they didn't have that until they, they didn't have that until God introduced to them a choice. In other words, life was whatever God said. If God said this was a plant, it was a plant. If God said this was the sun, it was the sun. They didn't know any different. It wasn't like they knew stuff apart from what God told them. But then there was this moment in Genesis chapter two. And God creates this tree, we call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He puts it in the middle of the garden, and he tells Adam and Eve not to eat from this tree. 
So you can have everything in the garden. This is your purpose. Steward everything here, but you can't eat from this tree. And what we, he introduces a choice, actually a command of abstinence. Everything you can do, you can't have this. And what we teach um, in theology, uh, and some people that wouldn't believe this, but of course I teach this because this is the kind of theology I believe, is that when God introduced a choice, he also introduced real worship because they worship God in the midst of having the opportunity not to. See, it's an option, it's a choice. They can turn away from God or they can turn towards God. Prior to that, they weren't able to. There was no other, uh, there was no other knowledge about anything but to do what God said or but to believe what God said. And so the point, too, and, and when we're talking about the need for salvation, we need to know we were created in God, God's image and we were commanded to abstain from a specific choice uh, as we enjoyed li- the life that we were given. Genesis 2 says this, verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you can't eat. From the day you eat from it, you will surely die. And it's important that you get this, that God told them, if you eat from this, you're going to die. So obviously as the story continues in Genesis chapter 3, they were tempted by the enemy to disobey God. And if I were to read through it, you see how the enemy tempts them. And, and then Eve eats through deception by the enemy. And then she gives to her husband and then Adam eats. So Adam and Eve disobey God. They do what God told them not to do. And as a result of them doing what God told them not to do, there are very specific consequences. Obviously God said you're going to die. But it's important to know what death meant. It wasn't just simple. Death meant three things. It's a threefold understanding of death according to Genesis 2. The first is there was physical death. You see that in Genesis 3.19. Physical death was not something that you and I were created for. How do we know that? We know that because there was another tree in the garden called the tree of life. And after they ate from that tree, the reason that they were banished from the garden, human beings were banished from the garden because God actually says we need to banish them from the garden lest they stretch forth of their hand and eat from the tree of life and live in this condition forever. The reason that they were banished from the garden was because they would live in that condition forever. Death set in, this cycle of death, and that is exactly why whenever we have a loved one die, we feel that sense of this is wrong. It is wrong. It's not something that God created us for. And so when we start talking about the redemption aspect of God and sending Jesus, how many times does Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. It's, he's, not just, he's not just trying to tie everything together here. He, he literally is. The tree of life was a representation of the coming Messiah in Jesus Christ. That's why he you see him say this over and over again, refer to himself as life. So physical death set in, um, and we see that in Genesis 3.19. This is what uh, God is saying to Adam and Eve as a result of them sinning. He says, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, from you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's a poetic way of saying you're going to physically die. We also see that there's spiritual death. Now, there's tons of verses, especially in the New Testament, that talk about when we sinned, we physically died. Now, maybe I need to clear this up for a second. I was uh, talking to somebody one time, and they said, man, when I get to heaven, I'm really going to have a conversation with Adam. (laughs) You know, they thought that 
because he was really dumb and he shouldn't have done what he did. Adam's name means man. The concept of the fall, which we're discussing, is that all of humanity was in Adam and Eve when they chose to do what they did. In other words, if you were Adam and you were Eve, and you say to me, I wouldn't have done that, yes, you would have. That's, that's the concept. The concept of the fall is that no matter who was there, whether it was, whether it was Steve and Jane, it wouldn't matter. Adam means man. It was a representation of the human race. When they sinned, it's like we all sinned. Okay, if you was you, it would have been the same exact thing, and it's important to know that. When they sin, physical death set in and spiritual death set in. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as through one man's sin, this is Adam, entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. <clears throat> and what he's saying there, and he goes on to say, every person that's born after Adam, every man, every woman that's born, inherits what many theologians call a sin nature. And so death spread to all men. Every person that's ever created born after Adam and Eve, every person that's born inherits a sin nature. And then he says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. In other words, when the law was given by God, it made them aware that they in fact were incapable of living righteously. Sin was present, but the law came and showed men and women that they were incapable of living the way in which God created them. So the law has a very specific purpose. He goes on to say, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him to, to, who was to come. There's a lot there. I'm, I'm simply just using this verse to say he's telling us that we're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 is more clear. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. He's talking about spiritually. You are spiritually dead because then he goes on to talk about salvation as it relates to you and I and eternity. So important for us to, to get this uh, it, right in from the beginning, spiritual death. The other is eternal death. Now, this is the third uh, aspect of death. As we're all physically going to die, uh, we all are spiritually dead without, uh, without salvation, okay? So this is why we have the need for salvation. And if we die in our sins without being saved by somebody greater than ourselves, because we can't enact salvation upon ourselves, we can't save ourselves, without being saved, without being redeemed, we will eternally die. And this is what 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 would refer to. There's many other scriptures that would say the same thing. And he goes on to say, Paul's writing this to the Thessalonians, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. For after all of it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Gotta love those metaphors. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. He's very clear. It's very popular to not believe in hell today. I don't know what you do with a lot of passages in the Bible. You can't really believe it biblically. Um, and so people will say a lot of things. I, I don't have time to go over that tonight, but I could, um, I could destroy the idea that there isn't a hell because there is. And what even hell is, it's not hard to define it, it's not hard to understand it, even when you understand the history behind it. But he goes on to say that their penalty is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. 
which is not what we were created for. If anybody has an easy time preaching hell, something's wrong with them, honestly. Because God himself gave his son so that the whole world would have an opportunity to come back into relationship with him. So I never understand why a person has an easy time preaching hell, to be really honest with you. As a human being, it shouldn't be easy because all of us, but for the grace of God, are on our way to an eternal, um, an eternal existence from the presence of the Lord. Eternal destruction is what the Bible calls it, which um, is not something that uh, is easy to understand. Therefore, we have a need for salvation. A sick person needs a doctor. An accused person needs a lawyer. A drowning person needs a lifeguard. You and I need a Savior. That's the truth. In our sinful condition, we are not able to save ourselves. We need someone to intervene. We need someone to interact that has more power than you and I. This is the reality. Uh, this is what we call the fall, the great fall. We fell from our relationship with God. We fell from our place with God. Chap Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, all have fallen short, all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Everybody has sinned. That's why... Uh, Children, as old as they can talk, they begin to sin. That's what happens. You didn't nurture that into them. I never taught my son or my daughter how to lie, and yet there are times where they may tell a fib, but they never were taught that. It's something that innately comes out of them at the moment that they're able to talk, and it's just uh, part of the human condition uh, that we are born into. This is called the fall. Now, I want to talk to you just for a few moments about the provision for salvation. If you have a question, you can ask it at the end, all right? Not during, but at the end. So write it down, and I'll be glad to answer what I can. I want to talk to you about the provision for salvation. The storyline of Scripture does, in fact, reveal time and time again, obviously from the Old Testament all the way to the New, that God had a plan and God had a purpose. And isn't this an amazing thing based on we talked about God's foreknowledge. God is omniscient. It means he knows the past, the present, and the future. God's eternality. God is outside of time. He's eternal. He's not like us. And so, therefore, God's omniscient. He's eternal. He knew what was going to happen before it happened, and he set a plan in motion before the plan actually was enacted. We know, based on his uh, attributes, God was able to do this. And there are verses that actually say this. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, depending on your theological background, you might look at that a little bit different. I'm just pointing out the purpose that the, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan for our salvation, for those that would believe. He had a plan. He set it in motion before the foundation of the world. How could God do that? It's a great question. God's omniscient, God's eternal, and God's able to do things we can't understand uh, at all. First Peter chapter 1 says, says it the same, uh, verse 20, for he uh, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, talking about Jesus, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you through him uh, who are believers in God. Isn't that amazing? In other words, he knew that Jesus was the plan. The Father and the Son knew exactly what was going to happen. That's what Peter is saying. He was foreknown as Jesus to come before the foundation of the world, but that plan wasn't enacted until these times, is what he's saying. So he wasn't manifested until the need uh, or till the moment that was, uh, that was appointed. 
And so here we have just this basic understanding of God making provision uh, in times past for what he saw, first saw in the future. Now, it's important to just kind of walk through the purposes. I, I'm going to do this very, very, um, in a very, very short, brief way. But I, tell, I call this the temporary provision. And, and the reason I call it the temporary provision, my view of the Old Testament is that when you look at things like the law and the priests and the sacrifices and the temple, it's important that we realize that as God chose Israel, he chose them specifically to be his, the Bible says, his chosen people. He called them alongside him so that they would be the bringers of the law, they would be the establishing, they would establish the priests, the temple, and the sacrificial system. God used the people of Israel to bring forth the revelation and really preserve the messianic line, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that when the time came that the Savior, the Redeemer of all mankind would be born, these would be the people through whom God would bring Jesus Christ so that all people could have an opportunity to be saved and come back into right relationship with God. So God in his heart has a very special, obviously had and has a very special purpose for Israel. Some think that that has been completely satisfied. We still see in the Old Testament, God had a covenant and has a covenant with Israel because of what he called them to do. And it's important that we don't toss that out, even if we don't have understanding on what that is. But we do need to have a basic understanding of the Old Testament when it comes to those things that God called them to establish, which would set the stage for Jesus coming. Now, I just want to Look at the law for a moment. So God in Exodus, you know, you see throughout Exodus, but right in Exodus chapter um, 15 and even just a little bit before that, but Exodus chapter 20 is where we see Moses go up onto the mountain and God gives him what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, when I say the law, when the Bible says the word law, it refers to three different things. So you kind of have to know the context behind that, that moment to understand what they mean when they say the law. The law can mean the Ten Commandments. It can mean... Um, the Levitical law in the book of Leviticus, and it can also mean the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses, right? Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. <laughs> and if you were a good Jewish person, you actually had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, uh, what we call the Bible, but you had to memorize the Torah as you grew up and went through school. They only went to school for so long, but you had to actually memorize it. So a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish girl, maybe not all the girls, you know, it was a different time, they had to memorize the Torah, the first five books and I think that would be a good thing for Christians to do, by the way. Uh, maybe we should just memorize the whole thing. But the point was, is that, and I talked to you a couple weeks ago about how interesting it is that in Christianity, it's almost like whether you read the Bible or not, it's really not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal to me. But when you look at like Judaism or whatever, which really was setting the stage for Christianity, when you look at that, they took the Bible very seriously. When they said it was God's word, they actually meant that it was God's word. It wasn't negotiable. It wasn't something that you could read when you felt like it. It wasn't about how you felt. It was the truth. And so it's interesting to me, I just want to throw this out there as a side note, that we believe that the Bible's God's word and we don't read it very often and it's not that important to us. And I would say it's not because you and I don't care, but culturally something has happened that's reduced us down to a whole lot less than where we ought to be. And I want to say that to you to upgrade 
what you think about the Bible because you have to reconcile your beliefs with your practices. If you believe that it's God's word and it's important for you and it's life to you and you need to know it, then friends, we need to know the Bible. We need to read the Bible. We need to understand the Bible. That's why we're here talking about theology, but I'm just talking to you honestly and openly. It's amazing like how far we've come. And you look at this and and people call that like legalism. I, I think I just call that like they're serious about what, uh, practicing what they say they believe, and I think we ought to do uh, the same. So anyways, God brought about his law to give men and women an awareness of their need for him. That's why the law was brought forward. You, you see that from this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul's explaining to the Roman church the purpose of the law. He says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Remember, I already said to you, God gave the law to Moses because sin already existed, but he needed to show people that sin existed in their lives. He needed to show them that they actually needed a Savior. The law had a purpose. Uh, God gave it to them for a very specific reason, that they, they could not accomplish what the law stated. They were not able to, so therefore it brought out of them even greater awareness or greater need. That's what Romans chapter 5 says. But isn't it interesting when you start talking about when Jesus came, Matthew chapter 5, I've got lots of verses here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish them or take them away, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. But it was accomplished in Jesus, as we'll talk about Jesus lived a sinless life, When people challenge Christianity, something important to note, Jesus lived a sinless life, and that's important to you. It's important to you because no human being could ever perfectly live out the law. Not one human being could ever do that. Actually, the purpose of the law was to prove we couldn't. But when Jesus came and lived a sinless life, he lived a sinless life according to the awareness that God brought in the law. And you want to know that because it's something that's very important for us. And so you have other verses where it says that in Acts chapter 13, verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that, though, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. In other words, the law of Moses came to show you that you weren't free. And by you trying hard to live out what the law of Moses said, you realized that you weren't free, and you couldn't get free by trying, by trying to live living harder for the God. It wasn't possible. Nobody was capable, nobody was able or had the ability. Therefore, we needed a Savior once again. So the Old Testament, once again, sets the, scene, sets the stage for the need for a Savior. This was their provision, though. God gives the law, and then he gives the priests. In the book of Exodus, God separates the tribe of Levi to be priests, and the priests were those who ministered to the Lord on behalf of the people. We would call these mediators, all right? You have prophets, priests, and kings as mediators in the Old Testament, But the priests had a specific function because they would take the sacrifice and they would bring it before God and they would atone for your sin. There were five kinds of sacrifices, but the priest was the one that would handle that. They would handle the articles of the Lord. They would handle the temple of the Lord. They were the ones that were specifically set apart to to serve before God, especially on behalf of people. And I have verses there. And then there was the sacrifices. The concept of sacrifices goes all the way back to Genesis. It wasn't just in the law. And it wasn't, just, uh, it wasn't just when Moses came, but Cain and Abel obviously made sacrifices, Abraham as well. However, the system of sacrifices was instituted, 
And one of the primary purposes was to atone temporarily for the sins of the people. The law brought forward that we sinned. The sacrifices were what we brought forward to God in this system that he developed to atone for our sin. But it was temporary. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 says. For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And he goes on to saying, like, even though Israel took the sacrifices, did what God told them to do, they brought those sacrifices to the temple, and they made a sacrifice on behalf of their sin, the sin their sin and the, their family, they were only temporary. They were covering the sins of the past, and it wasn't something that would cover them eternally. But when you think about, uh, when you think about the law, Jesus fulfilled the law, when you think about uh, the priest, Jesus is called the perfect high priest. When you think about the sacrifices, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It, if you don't want to know the Old Testament, you need to, okay? Because this, all of this makes sense when you read these references in the New Testament because Jesus fulfills absolutely everything that was considered temporary provision in the Old Covenant. And the final one you have is the temple. In Exodus, the concept of the temple was born as the tent of meeting, then Solomon later builds the, builds the temple. And the temple was essentially the place of God's presence, the place of worship, or it was considered God's house. And Jesus would refer later on in the New Testament to his body, his body as the temple. Remember, he says, I will destroy this temple, raise it up in three days. They were offended by that. How are you going to raise, how are you going to rebuild this temple? You know, it took how many years it took to build this. He was talking about himself. And then Paul later on talks about the body of Christ as the temple of the Lord. And he even says, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God dwells in you. He moved from a temple made with hands to what God has created in us. So there's these temporary provisions, and we want to understand them at least at a basic level as you go through the Old Testament. But they're obviously not the complete provision. The complete provision is Jesus Christ as we see from the Old, uh, Old Testament establishing this stage is set, uh, and it's, but it's in and through the person and the work of Christ that we find complete, total provision for our salvation. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus says this in the story of Nicodemus. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? We were lost, but what was lost in us? Our relationship with God was lost. We were no longer, we were spiritually dead. The presence of God, which was breathed into us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, was no longer evident and was no longer resident inside of us. So we were separated from God. This is the truth of Scripture all throughout. So Jesus came to seek and to save. Isn't it interesting? He came to seek. It means he came to initiate salvation. He came to initiate salvation. He came to look for people um, all over the world. First Timothy chapter 1 says this in verse 15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. In other words, you can't be saved unless you know you need to be saved. Okay, a drowning person needs a lifeguard, an accused person needs a lawyer, and a sick person needs a doctor. If you're not on the other end of that and you, you're not aware of your need, you won't be saved. Here's what I want to say to you as I continue to talk about Jesus being our provision. 
I believe that there are a lot of people in churches that aren't actually saved, regenerated, born again. I believe that. I don't know who's who. It's not mine to judge. But there are a lot of religious unsaved folks that don't know what salvation is, don't know that Jesus is the only way, because I continually hear people say, I'm a good person, meaning I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and if God asked me uh, why it is that I should be with him forever or why it is that I should or do have eternal life, there are a lot of very strange answers that people give still today, good church-going, um, tithing attending folks, and I don't know why, and I think a lot of it is is that we don't have a grasp on salvation. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be smart. You just have to respond to the real gospel of our salvation. That's all that it is, and it doesn't always have to, you don't have to understand every little uh, detail of it. You just have to respond to the revelation that God gives you, but the revelation that God gives us is not that we're a decent person, okay? It's not that we just need to do a little more. It's not that we need to try harder or we need to somehow work better. This is never going to save us. Nothing we do could ever save us. In other words, when I tell you that Jesus is the full, complete, total provision for salvation, that means it's not anything you do. It's not anything you can ever do. There's nothing that you can ever do to be saved. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And we need to abandon our efforts of trying to appease or please God in any way possible as it relates to our salvation, as it relates to us becoming regenerated, born again, and walking upright in relationship with God. Acts chapter 4, 12 says, there, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus is the only thing that saves people, period. So important for us to understand that. Now, I want to talk to you just briefly about what, it, what the provision of Jesus looks like. The first part that we need to discuss is the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. He lived a perfect life, and in so doing, he fulfilled the law. He did what a human being could not do. Now, I would say to you like this. This is where you kind of have to, uh, it's not 845, is it? 745. I'm, I'm, my watch is an hour ahead. I'm so glad that my watch is an hour ahead tonight, y'all. I, I, had a, I had a little freak out moment just for a second right there. I don't know if you witnessed it or not, but I just let you in to what just happened there. I went, wow, did I really talk that long? I thought we were doing good on time. All right. Now, um, Adam and Eve sinned. We talked about that, right? Every human being born after Adam and Eve inherited what the Bible calls the curse. All right, this would also be, another, another terminology would be the, the sinful nature. Theologians, we, we're all just trying to figure out a term that makes sense, okay? We inherited sin sickness. That's the term we use in our church, sin sickness. Every human being. Jesus wasn't born through the line of Adam. Jesus was born and conceived of the Holy Spirit. It's important to know that. While he was a human being, he wasn't born with the sin sickness that every other human being was born with. He didn't come through Adam's line. The Bible says very clearly, not only in um, Isaiah chapter 7, but Luke chapter 1, that he would be born of a virgin. Christians need to believe Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. It's not something that you can flirt with. 
If he's not born of a virgin, he was born with sin sickness. That changes everything. So when you start um, flirting with these ideas where people have uh, unsubstantiated gospel accounts like the gospel of Mary and some of these other works that are, again, unsubstantiated, unscholarly, uh, bits and pieces were even found and they were found in later um, they were found in later centuries. Uh, it's, it's easy to prove a lot of this stuff is not uh, sub- substantial, it's not scholarly. However, if you start messing around with some of these things, some of these ideas, it changes what you and I believe and it changes the power of what you and I uh, believe. I remember um, there were some popular books about 10 years ago that were saying things like, well, it wouldn't matter if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. There was a book uh, that somebody wrote, and they said that in there. And I told some of my friends, it's not okay to flirt with that idea. He thought it was just something that we could say because it wouldn't change my faith in Jesus. Yes, it would. It would absolutely change your faith in Jesus if he wasn't born of a virgin. The Bible says that he was, and that's why, of course, we believe the authority of Scripture. But that is, a, that is an essential part of what you believe. And you have to lock that in. And when we sing the songs at Christmas and we celebrate the virgin birth, that's a very holy thing. It's a very serious thing. Sometimes I wonder if we've forgotten how serious, excuse me, how serious that really was. And so the Bible says this very clearly. Jesus lived a sinless life. Not because, he did, he did however, in scriptures it says very clearly that he was tempted in every way. The Bible says he was tempted in every way. In other words, just like Adam was created, and was in a perfect environment, when Adam was given the opportunity to disobey God or obey God, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. Jesus was given the very same opportunity time and time again. It says very clearly that Jesus was tempted in all things, just as a human being would be. And yet he resisted, and he trusted himself unto God. Isn't this amazing? Jesus went through what anybody would go through, and he resisted. It was like a do-over as a second Adam, essentially. And so Jesus lived a sinless life. He was a perfect sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God, according to John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist looks at Jesus, who was his cousin, walking by, earthly speaking. He was his cousin. And he sees him walking by, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is it important that we read this or understand this? Because Jesus... When they would offer a sacrifice, the sacrifice had to be without blemish, okay? It had to be without blemish on the outside. It couldn't have like a broken leg or it couldn't have spots. And so they had to offer a sacrifice that was perfect, so to speak, on the outside. But Jesus was perfect on the inside. Jesus was sinless, completely, totally, as a human being, he was perfect. And when he offered his life on our behalf, it was the kind of sacrifice that could save all humanity because he was, just as Adam was standing in for all humanity, Jesus as a perfect sinless sacrifice on the cross was standing as a perfect human being on behalf of all humanity. It's important that you believe the sinless life of Jesus. It's very important. He was a perfect sacrifice. The second thing we want to look at is the death of Jesus. In the same way that a sacrifice was offered, Jesus gave his life for our life. 175 times the Bible references the death of Jesus. It's a very serious thing. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 says, he began to teach them, his disciples. He had walked with his disciples for two and a half years, and based on their messianic theology, they weren't quite sure that he was the Messiah. But it says in verse 31 of Mark, after two and a half years, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed 
and after three days rise again. And that's where actually Peter rebukes him, and the Lord, may it never be, which was a colossal mistake on Peter's part. And then he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. By the way, I, I've never, I don't think I do this very often, but I taught on that this last weekend at our church. It's called Get Behind Me. It's on our Vimeo channel. I don't always advertise my, my sermons like for everybody. Hey, you got to listen to this, but I want you to listen to that. It's, it's important. It's, the sermon's called Get Behind Me. And I, and I talk about this moment and, and the importance of them getting the plan of Jesus and understanding the pattern of Jesus, which was to follow his way of life. But Jesus in this moment starts to explain plainly to his disciples that he needs to die. It says he must suffer. You, you need to underline that. Jesus tells his disciples, I must suffer. If you've ever wondered, there, there are questions. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Because an offering had to be made. A life had to be exchanged for our life, or you and I will die in our sins. And with our sins, we will bear the consequences of our sins as human beings. The important part of Jesus living a sinless life, being a perfect sacrifice, offering his life, dying the death was to exchange his life for our life. We call that substitutionary atonement. He substituted his perfect life for our sinful life and he stood in for all humanity. That when you and I believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, we have new life, eternal life with God forever. It's the only way in which we can be saved. So when you think about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, you think about it with an utter importance. Isaiah 53, we call this the passage of the suffering servant. Isaiah prophesies, it says, talking about Jesus, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. He's talking about those people in that time and really just all humanity. Even though Jesus went there to the cross on our behalf, we didn't esteem him, we didn't consider him, we actually, humanity killed him and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He went through with it because for us. He was crushed for our iniquities, the uh, chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep, all of us have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Jesus. That is amazing, that the plan of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, was that the Son would come and take all of the iniquity, all of the sin of humanity, right there at the cross. It's incredible, it's, 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 incre it's an incredible thing. First Peter chapter 2, Peter reiterates that very same passage. He actually just quotes it. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says it in a little bit different light. It says, he, being God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, who know, knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, we get what we don't deserve because we believe on Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The exchange on the cross is, is really what that's about. There's an exchange of life. Jesus is saying, I will give my life not just for you, but I will give my life to you. And we talk about the response to our salvation. This is important to bring back up. John chapter 19, that's that moment where Jesus is on the cross. You guys have all 
heard this before one way or another, where Jesus breathes his last breath and he says, it is finished. What is finished? What is finished? The striving to perform before God, the system and sacrifices and all that set the stage for Jesus doing what he just did, all that man could ever and would ever do to please or appease God or stand before God in his own righteousness, it's all finished. Jesus paid for it all. It's all because of him. And so now if anybody ever wants to stand before God, there is only one way on, in the world that you can do that, and that is through Jesus Christ. It is completely, totally, utterly finished. The full and complete provision has been made in Jesus Christ when he died. Now, it's important for us all to realize that without the resurrection of Jesus, the death of Jesus wouldn't matter, right? If he didn't rise again, because the promise to us of eternal life is that we, obviously, physically are still going to die, but if we give our lives to Jesus, we're going to rise from the dead because spiritually we're reborn. Therefore, it's important for us to understand, know, uh, and really hold dear the resurrection of Jesus because it wouldn't be, his death would not be effective towards us who believe if he didn't rise again. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is an incredible chapter for you to read on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then your resurrection as a believer. It's something that you might hear at funerals. I've actually shared it before in similar context. But I'll just read to you four verses because we're reading hundreds of verses tonight. I can promise you a lot of Bible. And uh, we're actually coming to a close, believe it or not. This has gone fairly quickly for the amount of verses that I, I've had. All right. Now, I make known to you, Paul says to the Corinthians, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now this is important. He's saying here's what the gospel is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If you ever want to point to a passage of the Bible of what the gospel is, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, chapters 1 through 4. Um, it's very important. And then in verse 12 of chapter 15, he says this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there, there was people in that time that were saying there was going to be no resurrection from the dead. And so he's confronting them and the importance of the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That's what he says. He's saying if Christ was not raised from the dead, our preaching, everything we're doing is completely in vain. In other words, the apostolic message in the first century was that Jesus rose from the dead. Why were they martyred in the first century? Because they preached a resurrected man. When the Sanhedrin had delivered Jesus over to be crucified and the rumors began to spread after those three days that he had rose from the dead. Everybody wanted to put a squash to that. And so they started over that first century. People were persecuted time and time again. The apostolic message, the message of the gospel that was preached was that Jesus rose from the dead. This was so important. And, and it's important not to just preach it on Easter. We actually believe that there was a man who rose from the dead. And we believe that because we're his followers, we too are going to rise from the dead. This is uh, what we believe, a supernatural reality of the resurrection. 
Isn't that awesome? You guys need to smile a little bit on this. This would be, this would be a very important part to smile on if you believe in Jesus. Because even though you die, yet shall you live. Jesus said it many, many times. I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. Those who believe in me will never die. He wasn't joking. He wasn't kidding. He wasn't sowing a fairy tale into them so they would have good dreams. It wasn't pixie dust. It was a reality. I'm telling you, you're going to rise from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15 and 16 says you're going to get a spiritual body. I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully it looks a little bit better. I'm just saying. Resurrection, life is what we're after. And so, yes, we die in this life. You are going to die. That's why it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We're all going to die, and, and this is what the Bible says to us. Except for that one generation that's raised in that glorious day. And I don't exactly know what that's going to look like because it yet, it's yet to happen, and it is a mystery to us. But we all will die, and and I would tell you that if you're a Christian, death is not a downgrade, friend. It's not a downgrade. And yes, we grieve the loss of loved ones. We, obviously, we do. It's hard to lose somebody. And it's hard to process death. If you would ask me as a pastor, what's one of the hardest things for you to process? I would tell you it's death. Death is one of the hardest things to process because I, in my heart, I know we weren't created for it. It's that sense that you, when you get up as a pastor to, to give a presentation to a group of people when somebody has passed, I'll tell you, there's, there's nothing harder to do. Because in your heart, you're exploding with the realities and the truths of the resurrection. But at the very same time, you experience the tension of that loss that this is not what we were created for. It's the moment when we feel that, and we feel it the most. And so we celebrate, and we try our best to celebrate, but we also mourn and we, and we grieve, Right? There's that tension that we feel. But the resurrection is what we look forward to. Jesus rose from the dead that we might rise from the dead, that those who believe in him look forward to better days. Jesus is our provision. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, this is what we need. Jesus is everything that we need. When we say Jesus is enough, I want to take you theologically higher than what you're experiencing right now. I want you to take the pain of wherever you are right now and your emotions and whatever roller coaster you're on in life. I want you to, if you can, put that on the shelf just for a second and realize that there is something that has happened that is so great and so much bigger than whatever you're feeling right now, whatever you're going through right now, whatever you have experienced over this last several years, whatever has happened to you. I'm telling you, there's something greater than that. Theologically speaking, we are looking forward to something higher, bigger, and, uh, and more powerful than everything else. This is why we gather to present to one another the hope of our calling in Jesus Christ, that you and I will be raised from the dead and we will be together with God in heaven forever because of what Jesus did for you and I. And it's available for every person that would name the name of Jesus. He bids all to come, all to come, all to come. 
It's why we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's why we would risk our lives that one person might say yes to Jesus. People think missionaries are crazy. People think, people think those that would go to an unreached area that you might die if you, if you seek to reach those people for Jesus. They're not crazy. They just believe that it's worth it. They believe it's worth it that a person might come to know the resurrected Jesus Christ and that they too might come to follow him by believing in him. They believe that hope with all of their life, and they practice it. They follow it up with the, with the very hours and minutes and months that they've been given to be on this earth. And we, we all are missionaries in that sense. We all are missionaries in that sense. We're living in a post-modern, post-Christian era in the United States of America. And I'm not even appealing to what your belief system is about this. I'm simply saying that when I start reading the statistics of the next generation coming up, which I am so going to invest into the next generation, let me just say that to you. There's no negativity coming out of me towards the millennial generation. I'm going I'm, I'm to sow into that generation and believe they're going to be the greatest, they're the biggest generation of history, and I believe they could be the greatest generation that we've ever seen. We've got to sow into them. I think people skipped over my generation. I, I'm like, what am I, Generation X or something? It's like X, we don't even know who you are, you know. <laughs> it's like, whatever. So, and so, I, but when you look at the statistics, it's like uh, 6 to 8% of the millennial generation reads the Bible on an average of a week. Not a day, but a week. That's not enough to know the Bible. It's not enough to know the plan of salvation. It's not enough. It's not even about reading it every day. I'm just simply stating a fact. This is like these research groups that do these things. And then even from there, you look at like how often people share the gospel and, and, what, and, and if you look at like the statistics and how it's changed, you're, you're talking about a generation that doesn't know Bible stories. You're talking about a generation that doesn't know what we take for granted. They don't know. They weren't raised on it. They didn't grow up going to church and then everybody in the uh, apartment complex or everybody in the condo community or everybody in the neighborhood, you know, if, even if your parents didn't go to church, you know, they still sent you on the bus to go to church. That stuff doesn't happen anymore, ladies and gentlemen. It's not going on anymore. Nobody's sending their kids on the bus uh, with stranger so-and-so to go to church. It's not even looked uh, good upon anymore. Church pastors, uh, that's being looked down upon in our generation. We've got something that we've got to redeem in our culture. And But what we're really after is not making the church look good. We're after the church being pure and undefiled so that people can hear the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, it's probably not going to happen mostly in this building. It's going to happen when we leave the building. But we've got to boldly and lovingly and sincerely share the gospel of Jesus with people in a way where we urgently believe that if they don't believe what we're saying, if they don't adopt into their thinking and belief system, if they really don't believe that Jesus died, rose from the, from the grave so that they could be forgiven of their sins because they have a need for salvation, if we don't share that message, what in the world is going to happen? We don't want to say what's going to happen. We don't want to admit what's going to happen. That people will go into an eternity without God. Shut out from the presence of the Lord, it says in 2 Thessalonians. Shut out from the presence of God forever. There's no do-overs. There's no comebacks. There's no restarts. None. You're like me. You're busy. You've got a job. You've got a family. You've got things going on. But this is the most important thing in our lives. This is the most important thing in our lives right now is the message that we carry, is the life that he's given to us for a, for a stewardship. And none, none of us are doing this perfectly, none of us. 
None of us can raise our hand and say, I'm doing it the right way perfectly. Not one of us. But what we can do is we can raise our hands and say, God, help me to do what I'm supposed to do with what you've given me. Every one of us has got to do that. I've lived in the business world. I've lived in the church world. And I'll just tell you, like, fear is fear. We've got to get over it. You're afraid of what people are going to think. You're afraid of what people are going to say. You believe in a resurrected man. Don't hide that. You, you are already a supernatural believer, okay? You are. And that's why when we think about theology, what I love about theology is it takes us higher than our personal feelings and experiences and emotions right now. Uh, um, I, I talked to you about, um, I, I, I'm going to close up on talking about the response to salvation in just a second. I just want to say this, that I've been really concerned lately because um, when the election happened, I, I kind of sat out on opinions, quite frankly, and I still am. I, I just sat out, you know. Everybody's got something to say, and I, I, I get that. Every, and you have the right to say what you want to say. I would never try to take that from you. I, I, I love the fact that we can express um, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, whatever, you know, that's great. But what, what I was concerned about is, is how Christians became unhinged and unglued from the simple truths of the Bible and you know what it was to me? It was, it, was, it was actually scary because it was a window into where we really are in America. See, I've got friends in other nations, and I think they, and, and honestly, they're looking at this country as, you know, in a way where what we do affects the, the nations. I was in Sri Lanka, and I was talking to a pastor friend there, and uh, when our laws signed in homosexual marriage where a man can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman, and that was, across the board, that was considered uh, normal when that, when that was signed into law. And, and I know Christians differ on this stuff, but I'm, I'm just telling you what he told me. When that happened, Sri Lanka had never seen what they had seen. It was just weeks after that. Weeks after that, they started, all of a sudden, things started to emerge in their culture. It started coming out in their culture. Now, regardless of what you believe about that, I'm simply just telling you, he was sharing with me, the world is watching the United States of America, and what happens in the United States of America affects the world. We were in Mexico this year, and when Donald Trump started saying crazy stuff, crazy stuff about Mexico, anybody agree with those crazy stuff? I don't care if you like them or not, it's some, say some crazy stuff, it's crazy. And you should have seen, I'm sitting with my friends in Mexico, and you should have seen what they felt and thought about what was being said. I'm just simply telling you what was going on. And uh, because of what the news says and because of what is being um, said from our country, it's amazing how it affects the world. Here's what I believe, though, okay? I brought that up to simply say this. If we pick up the gospel and we start to believe the gospel, and we start to preach the gospel, and we start to live like Jesus, what kind of a ripple effect could we have across the planet? Not to take that for granted. I, I don't want to take that for granted. I, I'm not even saying we're positioned for that right now. I'm saying if we pay a price, I'm telling you, if we paid a price and we started living, you and I started living as missionaries, I'm telling you what that would do to the world. It would affect the world beyond what we can imagine right now. If we started living as missionaries in a land that needs missionaries, this country needs missionaries. They need missionaries. They need us to be missionaries. You don't even have to go to another country anymore. You have to live in your country as somebody who actually believes that a man rose again. The gospel of our salvation. 
If it doesn't concern you that Christians don't share the gospel anymore, it should. I want it to irritate you. I want it to bother you. I want it to mess with you that people have stopped preaching the gospel. They've stopped sharing the truth of God's word. It is happening all the time. I am amazed when I meet Christians that don't believe that. I'm like, get your head out of the sand. Get your head out of the sand. Before you know it, we're going to go the way of Europe, and we are going to be a monument and a museum of what God used to do, of what God did in one day. I don't want to become that. I don't believe that America or the United States of America, for that matter, is the Zion of God. I believe that it's just a country that God would use, just like any other country God will use. And I believe he's using countries all over the world. Like, look at the nations of Africa, and they are sending missionaries to us. I have met some. I have met some missionaries from Africa that have sent, been sent here. You know how convicting it is? You know how convicting it is? Oh, my gosh. But some, for some reason, we still believe that we're this missionary-sending organization or this missionary-sending country. It's not true. It was true. We are sending some missionaries, but there are countries that are mass-producing gospel advocates, gospel ministers, sending them all over the world. I was talking to our friends again in Sri Lanka, and they only have, I think it's 6% of their population of 22 million are Protestant Christians, born-again Christians. There are Catholics, and I'm not saying they're not, but they, it's hard to know sometimes in, in uh, where they are who's who because sometimes they collide with the government. I shouldn't have said that, but anyways, it's true. Anyway, so, uh, but 6%, uh, Catholicism isn't the same in all parts of the world, so I'm just throwing that out there in case you're offended. Um, 6%, and, and they are convinced, I, I, I so love our friends there, they're so convinced that they have to raise up missionaries. It's just part of their DNA. Like, we have to raise up missionaries. So you know what they did? They sent one of their finest leaders to the UK, and now he is the leader of the Foursquare Church in the UK. He was sent from Sri Lanka, born, raised, and sent from Sri Lanka. A, a country of 22 million, it, it's not, it doesn't even have a dent in the world of, of, of countries that have population. And, and, and they're sending missionaries. I was so convicted we're talking about carrying the message of a resurrected man. I know I deviated a bit. Now, let me just close by saying, uh, talking to you about the response to salvation, okay? We talked about the need for salvation. We talked about the um, provision for salvation. And now we're just going to close up by talking about the response to salvation. And then we'll have a Q&A time where you can ask me questions about what we're talking about. <laughs> and if you want to stump the teacher... Uh, please save that for an email, all right? I don't mind you ask hard questions that I may or may not be able to answer, but if you're just trying to be mean, I just got over pneumonia, all right? Don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, just, 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 don't do, just don't do that. Just ask hard questions, just don't do that. All right, so we've discussed the need, we've discussed the provision. How is it that we are saved? How is it that we are saved? The first scripture teaches us very clearly, we must believe. The scripture is clear that it's not uh, how we behave, but it's what we believe. I want to say that again. It's not how we behave, it's what we believe that enacts salvation. Now, um, I want to read Ephesians 2, verse 8. Listen, for by grace, that's God's unmerited favor, that's literally Jesus Christ being given for us. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Our faith in the grace that's given, our faith 
through the grace that's given. Listen to what he says. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, here's the contention. Is the gift of God faith or is the gift of God grace? Both. God gives us faith to believe and God gives us grace what we believe. Here's the thing. You have faith, but that doesn't mean that you have to believe. God gives you what you need to believe, and God gives you what you need to, God gives you what you need in order to believe, and God gives you what you need to believe. <laughs> it makes sense. It's the plug and the plug-in. He gives you both, but you get to plug it in. You choose what to place your faith in. Now, it's, it's really simple. It's, this isn't rocket science, okay? You can believe in yourself. I know people that believe in themselves. That's why we have atheism, we have deism, we have polytheism, we have all these isms. We have many things that people believe. Some people just believe in themselves, honestly. That is having faith in yourself. God gives you the ability to believe, and then God has given his son, Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus as your provision, you are made right with God, and the Bible says you're born again according to John chapter 3. You're born again, which means the Holy Spirit comes to regenerate you from the inside. Your spirit is born again. That's why you will live forever in eternity. You are born again. The Bible would say you're born from above. This makes sense. So we need to believe. We need to believe in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection. John 3, 16, we all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Acts 16, 31, there's so many verses they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your whole household. The jailer says to them, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had a choice to make in the, at that moment. Whosoever believes will be saved. We see this time and time again. It's by grace that we're saved, but grace is not enacted for us, it's given to us. It's gifted to you, you have to receive it. You have to receive grace. God doesn't force you, God doesn't coerce you, it's not the way that it works. Now, belief or faith, faith in God, faith in the finished work is not all that there is. The Bible also talks about repentance. Everyone who preached in the New Testament or preached the gospel also preached repentance. Where was that? I'm glad you asked. John the Baptist, who was pre the gospel being delivered, but he was preparing the way. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, now in the days of John the Baptist, who came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus also, many, many times, Matthew 4 is a good example in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, his first sermon, the first sermon of the church, chapter 2, verse 38, he says to them after they said, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This wasn't about chronology. He was just simply giving them a list of things that they needed to do. Believe, you need to repent. Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26, where he's talking to King Agrippa, he's talking to a king. And he says, so King Agrippa, I do not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, because was, Jesus was revealed to him. But kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And Paul was actually put to death uh, eventually. Now, 
Jesus paid for the whole world, but the whole world is not saved until they believe in what he did and they also repent. In other words, part of believing is repenting. It's the way that it works. There are people who say they believe, but they don't repent from being the Lord of their own life. And that's dangerous because it's like wanting, here's the, here's the illustration. And, and unfortunately, this gets preached. Some people would preach, if you just believe in Jesus. Well, that's not, I just showed you four people. John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, and Paul. That's not what they preached. Okay? We're just going with what the Bible says. That's not what they preached. That's what you hear today, but just because your favorite preachers say that doesn't mean that's what the Bible says. A lot of people preach half of it. You've got to preach repent. Why is repentance important? Because if you just preach faith in Christ, here's what you're saying. You pull over, Jesus is on the side of the road, you say, Jesus, get into my car, car being your life, Jesus, get into my car, he gets in, and then you just continue driving your life. Jesus enters your life. What real faith in Christ and repentance is, you pull over on the side of the road, you get out of the driver's seat, you take the deed to your car, you sign it over to Jesus, you open the door for him, he gets into the driver's seat, you get into the passenger seat, and you say, where are we going, Jesus? There's a big difference. And I'll tell you as a pastor, there's a massive difference in the way people live their lives. If you want Jesus to come into your life, or do you, you're going to have some problems. But if you want to give Jesus your life and not just have him come into your life, there's a big difference. It will change your life the way you come to Christ. And yeah, it doesn't sell. It doesn't give, uh, maybe a hundred people won't raise their hand for that salvation call. Maybe, maybe, maybe two will. But you know how many people, I have talked to people that have told me they have raised their hand in a church six times and they still don't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. That's what happens. And unfortunately, when you look in the Bible and you look at what happens today, there's a huge divide. And I'm not down on the church. I mean, we're doing some good stuff. But unfortunately, in 40 minutes, you can't always convey what you need to convey. Or in five minutes, that little five-minute altar call, come to Jesus moment. I mean, I'm getting a lot more bold, but I'm more, it's, more lo- it's love coming out of me. Like, I want people to give their lives to Jesus, but I don't want them to do it and just be like, hey, I want to give my life to Jesus because I want my life to be a little bit better. That's not, what the, that's not what this is. This is about a human being coming into right relationship with God and then for the first time in their life coming to know who they are. This is massive. And no, when they give their lives to Jesus, they're not going to know like the Trinity and the Father, Son, and Holy. You're not going to know. I mean, I didn't know any of that stuff when I came to Jesus. Here's what I did know. I had a revelation in my heart. God opened my heart. And I remember the moment where I said yes to Jesus and I stepped all in. I remember it. I actually was the kind of person that counted the cost. I'm telling you, I, I waited. I thought about it. I knew I had to give up some stuff. I wasn't the guy that thought I can have it all, have my cake and eat it too. I was the person that knew I had to give up some stuff. I knew I had to stop sleeping like I knew I had to do, stop doing some of the stuff that I was doing. I knew it. I knew that, that me saying yes to Jesus was denying myself and, re- and repenting from my old way of life. Now, if you ask me, as a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, do sometimes you still sin? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. But repentance initially is what helps you live the life of repentance as you continue the life with God. 
Because otherwise, if you don't repent before God, I am sorry of my sins, the way that I have lived. I have lived lawless. I have lived rebellious. I have had my middle finger up to you the whole way of my life. That is exactly the way that I have lived. You created me, you made me, and you've loved me, and that's what I did. I shun you. I put you out of my life. But when you come to him, you say, not just I'm sorry, but God, I am absolutely committed to you. And whatever you want to have, you can have. And whatever, whatever it is I put on the altar, I put it on the altar. All my preferences, it's all yours. And then he helps you from that place actualize that. But if we don't start there, the struggle is real, y'all. The struggle is real. Because we end up believing in Jesus but following ourselves. And don't start there. And if you're there right now, just all you have to do, the beauty of repentance is that we actually get to. It's like God would send his son Jesus from heaven to earth, live a sinless life, as an innocent man die, he was a a criminal's death, worse than that, crucified, perfect man. He would do all that because we were in his view. We were in his view. All of us were in his view. He was looking right at us. The Bible says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised the shame. He was humiliated by those that he created. He despised it because he had us in view. He didn't have a little piece of our heart in view. He didn't have a little little head nod of us in view. All of our life, he was like, I want all of you. I'm giving all of me for all of you and no less. It's all or nothing. Get in. It's the best life that you could possibly have, and I'm not going to beg you. I'm going to give myself to you and and for you. I want you. He, He proved it. He said, I want you. I want all of you. Not for a little religion. Not a little dabble, do you? He wanted all of us, all of it. And I know sometimes people preach this and they they preach it like they're angry. God's not angry at us. He's not mad at anybody. He's not at all, he's not angry at us. His wrath will come. His wrath is going to come. But he put all of his wrath on Jesus for those that would believe on his son. And that is the blessing of repentance is that we actually get to stand before a holy God in our unrighteousness and he puts on us the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we can finally stand with confidence because of what Jesus did for us. But I teach people and I tell people it's all or nothing. Don't stand before God like this. Don't stand, you stand in Jesus. It's a humble stand. I mean, you, you, it's, it's one of those senses like you can't believe that you're here. You ever, you ever been there? <laughs> I feel like that's my life. I can't believe I'm here. How did I get here? <laughs> Sometimes I'm sitting at a table and I go, how did I get here? And it's just fun. Like, I want to stay there. I want to stay with that robe where it's like, I, 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 know it's, I know it's who I am. I know it's what he paid for. But I just have this sense of reverence when I'm wearing it, you know? The sense of awe. Not like I can pay him back. Not like I sh- my feeling bad or my tremble is somehow like, see, I really care. But just like, oh, man, I can't believe this. I can't believe it. Don't put a little of the robe on, you know. Put it all on. Let it consume. Let him consume.